I'm Nick Terzo, and you are listening to The Radical. Today's episode falls on the somber anniversary that is September 11th. It's now been 20 long years, and I wanted to take this moment to dedicate this show to a friend, Matthew O'Mahony, who was killed that day while working at Cantor Fitzgerald in the North Tower. I used to call Matthew the mayor of Columbia County for all the joy and positivity he brought in organizing social gatherings at his country home. In my life for such a short period of time, he is still forever missed, but never forgotten. And this leads to my guest this week, who perhaps captured one of the most iconic images in history that fateful day. The photo of the second plane hitting the North Tower that made the unforgettable cover of Time magazine. We discuss the impact this event has had on his life, the trauma, and how it eventually drove him to capture the New York that he loved with his boombox project book. Photographer and artist Lyle Awerko joins me to discuss photography, being at the intersections of history, the boombox, and the future of the NFT art market. Coming up, my conversation with Lyle Owerko. Welcome, Lyle. We've got a lot to talk about. Let's get right into it. When you're working with a band and they produce an album and you're their A&R person and it's like you've all gone to war, your war buddies, um, and, and that particular period of time is marked by that album. But then that band may break up six, seven years down the road and you may only keep contact with one guy out of the four that you were like brothers with. And, and I think that as you get older, you, the foundations that bring you together aren't always the foundations that keep you together. And, and also what camaraderie you had, um, say in New York, the Bowery in the mid nineties, you may have had camaraderie around CBGBs and Brownies and all these other venues. They're all gone now. And it's very rare that some of that camaraderie will still exist. There may be still that person who walks down the Bowery and goes, damn it, Stevie Chibis used to be there. And, and they're still wearing the same outfit they wore <laughs> 20 years ago. And, and then there's the other person who just walks down Bowery and, and, and they don't even think twice about CBGB's not being there anymore. Um, that it's a John Varvatos store. And they stop in there every now and then to get someone a scarf as a gift, you know, yeah. um, it's uh, time changes people and people change with time and, um, and times move on. Yeah. And it's all like a book, right? Everyone says there's chapters and there's, you know, different characters in each chapter of your life kind of and in your book. So they don't necessarily make it from chapter one to chapter 15, you know, in a consistent way. So, um, well, well, exactly. And, and this gets to our conversation, which is we hadn't talked in a little while. Um, but then you noticed that I was suddenly appeared in this NFT scene and, um, people I hadn't heard from 10, 15, some 20 years because of my work 
being translated into NFTs and being a bit at the forefront of this new movement, they all reached out. And, and it was like you hadn't even um, missed talking to each other for a decade because I think there's fundamentally, there's creative people that evolve with the times and, and they're always somewhat current. Um, like early in our conversation, you mentioned a member of the Nine Inch Nails and, and you look at um, Trent Reznor's transition into movie soundtracks and everything that he's doing and, and the music he's creating for the genre is incredibly current, incredibly vibrant, um, award-winning. Um, and, and you're like, wow, the guy didn't even miss a beat. He went from nine inch nails and scrapping it out with TVT records to um, a very fascinating visual career with the directors he partnered with and the, the golden age of music videos to them being part of the beats trans transition um, to Apple. And then now he's writing music for incredible soundtracks. I don't even know the guy, but I'm like, wow, you just managed to stay current. Um, it, despite times changing, you evolving as an artist. And there's some people that just managed to do that. And um, I was really fortunate where I was seeing the photo world transitioning rapidly and, and predicting it, especially when you look at things like Moore's Law, which predicts uh, a silicon chip halving in price and doubling in speed every 18 months you apply that to the technology of cameras, which evolved out of an analog device to a digital device. And then that digital device rapidly evolving so quick that um, a prosumer level camera rivaled the greatest pieces of gear used by professionals just merely 10 years earlier. And the prosumer level gear making someone an instant professional. And for me as a photographer, I had to stay ahead technologically. And so translating images into prints became super important. Like it wasn't so much about taking great photos or perfect photos. It was taking photos that were relevant to my point of view of life and then translating them into a magnificent print because other people could have stuff look magnificent on a screen. But if he made a magnificent print, that was still where there was rarity, where there was value, where there was provenance, and then there was something special. And then suddenly this NFT thing came along. Mm. And, and, and that was, that tapped into my legal brain, which was like, wow, copyright into perpetuity. Photographers can now assign a VIN number, like a vehicle to uh, a piece of creation be it um, visual animation, be it a static JPEG image to a conjunctive piece of animation with music. And you can assign a smart contract to that that then disseminates the residuals that echo out of its um, passage into future history as an object of intrinsic value. And I was like, guy, I want on that train. <laughs> And, and that's what led to you and I reconnecting to talk today. Right. And I want to talk, you know, we'll talk because our lives have intersected 
you know, across a couple of your projects. It's always interesting. I feel like I was somewhat in the background for a couple of your evolutions, let's say. Um, So I want to try to connect all the dots because you've had a career that's not um, a straight line, as I like to say. Um, And it's multimedia, you know, multimedium in a way, in my mind. Um, You know, and I think sometimes you've been way ahead of the curve, obviously. Um, You know, and I'm thinking... When we first met, you know, and he had a bit of a collective around the compound, right? It was compound, right? Is that what it was called yeah, at the time? Yeah, it was called Patinsky. And it was really interesting that you guys had this idea, which I think today would be hands down home run, multimedia, multi everything studio. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was in 1998, 897. Yeah, 97, I think, was, yeah. was when we met uh, right on it. And um, I, th- I think it was seeing the possibility. It was the early days of the internet, obviously. And at that time, your contact with the internet was primarily, especially if you were a student, um, you were, you were in these early email ideas, um, and the internet being this, uh, really interesting pipeline out there. You were using (laughs) dial-up modems, uh, you're dealing with all of the static and squawk of that, um, email at that time, I only knew it when you were working at a job, like you're saying they had an inter-office messaging system, but that wasn't connected outside of the, the, the sphere of wherever you were at. So you probably remember this at record labels where you were dealing with instant messaging in, in, in that interior environment. And, um, for me, I really loved the idea of music videos, but one of the things that was fascinating is that the creator didn't participate in the success of it. It was a work for hire idea. Um, as a music video director, you, 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 you did something for whatever budget you were given and then you walked away. There was no ownership over it. Photography on the other hand was licensing, copyright, ownership, all of those things. And didn't make sense to me in the visual side that it worked. It also worked that way in the music industry where authorship was a major part of the participation and creation of any type of song or music. Um, and and I, I was hoping to bridge that. And that's where the initial compound came about in 97 in New York was the idea of a studio that um, worked where members not only were musicians, members were visualists. And you were part of the same remunerative uh, backbone to that idea. Like if it was a, a, a an album that you put out, there was a visual component that worked with it and all members participated in it much like a songwriter would. Um, I didn't realize how naive it was to have that idea at the time. And I also didn't realize that how for future forward thinking it was either. Um, and, and it was also just at the beginning of the music industry becoming digital. Right. And that changed absolutely everything. But you guys were multidisciplinarians, right? I mean, you had the music, uh, you were visually orientated, who like who else man was it what did the other there was a couple others what did they, yeah, was there, it, was, there was rocky uh was a guitar player and and very much a, a very poetic individual 
Um, I wrote lyrics and found a lot of the beats that were, we were using. Um, and then Scott really pulled all the music together to make sense with it. Um, one of our great um, successes and failures is that while John Eaton was mixing some of our tracks at Daddy's House in New York, that um, which was Puffy's studio at the time, um, Biggie heard our music and, and he offered to buy our beats <laughs> from us. And, and we were like, no, nah, no, nah, we got this thing, man. It's really cool. Like I'm not selling to anyone. And, and now it's like, I, you know me, so you know, I wouldn't BS you on that story, but, but it's, um, one of my great failures. You were the first <laughs> beat that- star and you didn't even know it. First beat star platform. Yeah. So Biggie tried buying my beats once um, and and we thought we had something better going on. Um, Little did we know. Um, But it's, I I, I still believe in the collective idea. I I think that that's the formation of, of me being in the wilderness the last 20 years and then stumbling in the NFT world. And, and then even though the NFT world's been through this, how uh, sway this, that, what's like, it still hasn't touched ground on what the fundamentals I thought an NFT were when I first started and released work in the space, which is provenance, point of view, um, uh, publication, uh, perspective, all of those things. Because if those things exist, exist in an object that you've created why you need an nft to give it value is it's not the inverse you are bringing something of value to the nft space and the blockchain is enabling it to have a smart contract into perpetuity it isn't that it's an nft what gives it value and there's a lot of stuff being pushed into the space but I think it'll all be forgotten, um, much like um, kind of the trendy child toy of of an era until that kind of comes around another 20, 30 years down and, and then it's real value in that, whether it's like um, the way we look at um, Pokemon cards or things like that or old Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle cartoons or our, uh, or, or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle uh, comics or the way old comics or baseball cards are looked at. Like usually in that time and space, they're throwaways. And then there's a time when there's a little bit of value to it. And then there's a time when there's no value to it. And then suddenly the cycle comes around and people are like, oh my God, there's only those many comics made of the, you know, Superman, I got to have one or Spider-Man or whatever it is. And so the NFT space is having that, moment right now where all this stuff is being thrown in the river, but we don't really know what's going to float down the river or rise back up to the surface. But I am still a big believer in what blockchain authenticating means. And that's exciting to me. Right. See, my feeling is that it's, you know, the NFT (laughs) is the pet rock of the 21st century um, its underlying promise is not, and that's where people should be focused. You know what I mean? But unfortunately it's gotten over its skis 
And I just think the term has become so weirdly toxic in a way that it's the underlying values that are going to come to the fore in the next, you know, 10 years, you know, whether that's through the metaverse or however it's going to like convey itself. Yeah. Cause I love someone like how, for instance, you can go on Carfax if you're looking to buy a vehicle and you can find out the whole history of it, when it had an accident, when it last had oil changed, if it had a brakes changed, if it ever had um, uh, anything of, of major mechanical work done to it, you understand it and you can see it super quick and you can pay for $35 and have a Carfax report downloaded on a vehicle. And that to me is what the value in an NFT space is with a piece of creative art that maybe its home is purely digital or its home is both digital and offline is that someone can go, wow, I found this thing by this guy, Lila Worko. It's really cool. And I just want to find out its history. I want to see its value. I want to understand what its value is. And very quickly, you can ascertain the value of it. Um, it's not into turning everything into a, a, a stock certificate protocol, um, but you, you do want to know the journey of it, much like um, the way when I used to buy albums or even CDs was reading the liner notes is right. like, oh, wow, that guy played drums on the track. Oh, that's cool. He's in this other band. And, and huh, wow, blah, 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 put backing vocals on it. Wow, that's really cool. And, 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 and that was some of the fun. And finding out like the album was recorded in two different cities at three different recording studios. And that, that gave, you had a sense of inclusion in the creation of that piece of art that you were valuing. And that's what I hope is, is the true future for NFTs is that isn't the value isn't in the NFT. The value is in the creation. The NFT is this beautiful sidecar liner note, uh, uh, provenance, uh, digital provenance certificate that gives the story of the object and its journey. Right. And I think the other thing, you know, look, we're tokenizing IP rights here, really, right? That's kind of what we're looking at. Let's get beyond the word NFT for a minute again. I'd like to keep yeah. getting beyond. Um, and I think what you're doing is taking a network that was, you know, and maybe in the sense of bands or stuff, you know, where you're kind of top down, right? You're still talking kind of downward towards your fans or what you produce for them goes down the chain, so to speak. Um, but in a network, um, you know, this is the first chance maybe for someone inside the network, unlike Facebook, to maybe become an owner and have a piece of equity as a fan. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that community around that and being able to tokenize that in a way, I think is really fascinating. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, absolutely. Um, <sighs> Facebook is owning your time and they sell your time to advertisers. So the time you spend in the space, your only value is the time you're spending in front of a screen. And, and you also don't own anything with Facebook. You've signed away all your IP to them uh, to be repurposed. You've signed away your browsing time, your interests, all of that you've signed away to an entity to be able to sell that. And, and if, 
the, the, this provenance space, this digital asset space, this blockchain enabled space allows both uh, participation of both audience and creator. And, and that's fascinating. It's, um, it, it, that's what I love about it is, is, and I, and I, I look forward to smart contracts getting smarter where um, I can have an audience of a small group of people. And I would love to be able to um, say, for instance, my boombox, um, my boombox series, I'd love to be able to airdrop uh, a mixtape uh, say for the Memorial Day weekend to the individuals that all own my augmented reality boomboxes. And then they get, they get something for their participation that's special to them. And only they get it because they hold the, they hold that object and I'm able to interact with that object. It's not just like me going out and tweeting out a thought or Instagramming out a thought or creating a, a raffle or you know, quick draft for those who were able to hit by the quickest. You've, you're actually building a strong audience and, and membership base to your artwork ideas, whatever they are, as a right. musician, visual person, animator, JPEG creator, GIF, you know, GIF God, <laughs> you know, like whatever, whatever, whoever, and however someone's doing something in this space, as long as it's able to be digitized, um, they're able to create an audience for it. Yeah, I, I, I listened to an interview with Raul Paul, um, you know, who's kind of a, I don't know what you call him, kind of a futurist in the space and an investor. Um, and, you know, he's kind of seen what's going on, at least in like everything in its infancy isn't perfection, right? So, but he's kind of seen that most people have been using this as like a cash grab um, instead of its intended purpose, which is building a network around that and a community of your fans. And he thinks anyone can do that from an artist to a uh, media company, even, you know, Disney could do it, right? Mm -hmm. um, so he, he thinks in the current though, people are kind of just, you know, I don't know, just being really clumsy with it and uh, a little greedy with it. Well, it, it, right now, like when I, I was, I was one of the first artists to launch on Nifty Gateway on the very first day they launched Nifty Gateway, which they call Nifty Gateway 2.0. So it's, we'll consider it 1.0 for me because it was my participation in um, the Winklevoss version of Nifty Gateway and, and Tyler and Cameron really saw something special there and they worked with Duncan and Griffin um, to buy their company and, and bring new people like me to the platform and introduce us to this idea of, of blockchain enabled creative art. And on my very first drop, you could buy one of my pieces for $20. And I really liked that. Like, like I was like, wow, someone can just buy something of mine for 20 bucks and, and they can hold on to it and do whatever they want with it. But I, I like that, that they gave this, this real democratic entry point. And then we did another drop the, you could get one of the a random piece for $60 and those all sold out super quick. And, and I was like, this is fun. 
like now I get to, to have all these little sidecar ideas that I had to my main projects. I could drop singles for my main album practice. Like I could, I could drop remixes of my main art practice and it was a way. And rather than putting it on Facebook or Instagram, I actually could sell them. So versus me just putting out a video on Instagram and people, you know, putting 200, 300, 400 likes on it. And, and, and then it, it dies within 24 hours and people move on. This was something really sophisticated and it's higher level sense of self as, as participation, um, art of reasonable entry and very inclusive and very democratic. And, um, and so I, I love that idea. And then very quickly, tremendous amounts of ether moved into the space as, as the buying, um, element, de facto buying element. And then the value of that scaled massively. And so I did some really nice PR in the first three, four months of participating in the space, uh, talking to whether it was Coindesk or Fortune Magazine or Bloomberg, et cetera. And then it very quickly became not how interesting is your art, was how much did that how sell much? for? How much? How much? How much? And um, there was, um, and, and, and then it, that's all the story was. There wasn't any talk about, VIN numbers and, and, and the enablement of artists and artists creating audiences for themselves, right? It just became, well, that sold for 3 million, that sold for 2 million, that sold for, you know, 70 million. And that became the story. And, it, and there was no discussion about the art anymore. And I don't know if you've seen the friend, is it friend Leibovitz uh, documentary that she's in conversation. Yes. Fantastic. I, exactly. And and, and she goes, so, you know, I go to this art, you know, I go to the auction house, I'm at, is it Christie's or Sotheby's and they bring a Picasso out and everyone's all quiet. And then, then, then the pricing goes up, goes up, goes up. And then finally the hammer comes down. It's like, you know, $60 million or a hundred million dollars, whatever, I'm paraphrasing what she said. And then everyone claps. And she's like, shouldn't have we all just clapped when they brought the Picasso out? Because the Picasso was amazing. And she goes, instead, we all clapped for who paid the most to have that. And she goes, that doesn't quite make sense to me. And I was like sitting there with my wife, who's a painter. And and and, I, and we were crack. I was dying laughing. I'm like, wow, it's so right. And I said, this is just like the NFT space right now. Like people are like, they don't want to talk to an artist that sold a uh, hundred things for $20 to a to hundred people who loved it for $20. They want to talk to the one guy who sold something for mega millions to one guy who bought it for mega millions. And that's Which it. ended up being a consortium, right? Something anyway. I mean, whatever. It, was I mean, it wasn't a fan thing or a. No, it wasn't a fan thing. So it's, it's just like, um, it's it's like saying talking about a great Rolling Stones concert that was paid for at a house in the Hamptons by one guy. 
like right. and saying that was the greatest Rolling Stones concert ever. And it was like, what? There was six guys in in, in the backyard and they paid uh, they paid fifty million dollars to the Stones to play in his backyard. Does that make it the best Rolling Stones concert ever, or was it a, a free show that they did in Hyde Park in the seventies, or or Cuba, the, the greatest one that was free? You know, exactly. So I, it's 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 there's a big line for me in the space right now between what is good, which and and what is press worthy and used to work kind of even together like like you could watch the provenance of an art piece go over time trading hands moving moving collections you would have these stories that would that would go with a piece like um, this painting was owned by uh, a high school teacher who then took it to auction, sold it for $800,000 and it was picked up by this collector and it went to this collection for 10 years and it hasn't been seen before and now it's coming out. And, th- and, th- and there was a flow to it and a storyline. And, and fundamentally, I, I wanna see the stories come back. Like, like why does this exist? Like, for instance, in, in, for the work I do in the NFT space, there's a massive story behind the existence of the pieces that that traces back two three decades to why those works exist and how they they operate in the universe or micro universe of the boombox project which the fundamentals of the boombox project is free speech empowerment youth corrosion um uh debate um innovation right innovation freedom um boldness loudness um all of these things and that's what it's about it's like because the the boom box was kind of an early um internet device and an internet device being something that connected people through media and technology and and portability right absolutely and and so that's where all of this comes into play. So if I'm going to occupy this new atmosphere, um, I'm not giving up on the stories. It's like, um, it's, it's, I, I do talk to a lot of people, a lot of people who've had longtime art practices are baffled by it all. Um, others are, are, um, one day I was driving down the freeway in LA and one of the top selling, NFT artist had his name written on the side of uh, the backside of a uh, Lamborghini. <laughs> and, and I was like, well, <laughs> uh, that's the way the NFT world's going right now. Like, and, and I don't think um, you would have ever seen Picasso driving down the Champs-Élysées <laughs> in a, in a, a convertible Rolls Royce with Picasso written on the back. It, right. it, 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 it didn't need to. Yeah. Dolly it's, you might have, but I don't know. So. Yeah. And, 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 and one of the guys I worked with in the advertising world, when I worked in advertising had a huge impact on me as Ken Wyden and Ken Wyden once said about, um, a particular individual we were working with, he said, never dress better than your work. And, 
and Ken was full of aphorisms <laughs> like that that you could talk. I could write a book just based on the things he said to me over the course of the decade or so that we worked together. But there's a lot of truth in it, and um, and 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 it's it's like they'll say that in the music industry, never dress better than the music you create. It's, it's, um, it's, uh, I, I was even reading this little anecdote, um, the other day that I think was retold by Rick Rubin when they were working on the traveling Wilburys and George Harrison left the room and for a minute and Bob Dylan leaned over to Tom Betty and said, you know, that guy was in the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 it's fun because there's a bit of self-effacement in that there's even self-deprecation and then there's even just a little bit of fandom and and it's and at the end of the day it's bob dylan but he's applauding that the other guy did something magnificent and he's just happy to be in the room with them and he never said that guy, you know, I heard he sold a couple hundred million albums. That's a big different. That's a much different comment than, you know, that guy was in the Beatles. It's, it's a big, there's a chasm between that. And I think that that's very quickly where in this digital art space, I don't even know what some of the art is saying, but the value is in, well, that sold for, $10,000 or that sold for a hundred thousand dollars or that's sold at auction for $3 million. And, and, and it's like, okay, but I've never read anything about why that was important right? or what, what value that brought beyond the um, commercial exchange for it. And I'm all for people making money. I think it's great, but I still want to know what the story is. Right. It's, it's like, it's like going to uh a movie and just sitting in a room listening to the sound of a projector. <laughs> like, Listen, I agree with you. Listen, I want to go, you know, speaking of things that have sold, <laughs> I do, I do want to go back and talk about the providence of the boom box project. Cause I think, mm -hmm. I think it was a remarkable accomplishment, but before I do that, you know, while you kind of touched on, how the traditional art world's trying to get their head around this. You know, I know you've said you've spoken to some gallerists that are concerned or freaking out. And what is like, what is the temperature of that? Like with the traditional folks, like what's going on digitally? Um, I just think it's, 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 it's been a massive eruption. It's been a massive disruptor. That's all amazing. Um, I think we both know from the early days of Napster, it was a it was a disruptor, but it didn't make music go away, and it changed the way music was done and handled um, and I consumed think, and consumed, especially. And I remember showing a friend of mine iTunes for the first time, and both our minds were blown. Like, what? I don't need this a uh, 50 CD changer in my office with where you spend all this time programming the names of the CDs into your changer. So you can then go to like this. It was like, now I can just listen to this giant universe of shuffle. And, and I, I still like iTunes 1.0. I, 
I, I still think the, the first um, uh, MP3 player that Apple put out was probably its best. I just love having the music in an inert object that played my uh, a thousand of my favorite songs. I still wish it, it could have had playlists, but I didn't want, I didn't need much more than that. I didn't need an internet enabled device. I did not need um, my, my playlists to be trapped on a, on a server, then streamed to me. That's, that was all ancillary. I just liked having this little brick that, played a whole bunch of my favorite songs and I could have them around with me wherever I went. And I, cause I spent a lot of time on airplanes. So I, I just liked listening to my music on an airplane and, and reading and, and within all of this change and this mulch that's been created. Um, as we said with Napster didn't make music go away. It just simply changed the way we consumed it. And music is there's still so much great stuff out there and i um last few days in the studio i've been listening to mike d's uh, echo chamber on itunes and man that's like sitting in the living room with a really good friend and he's just dropping this like all these different types of genres of music from from turkish psychedelic to to Brazilian bossa nova and, and old bossa nova, new bossa nova, like, and then and then old hip hop classics and and new hip hop classics because he's um, he 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 loves he's like a, a pop culture music scientist and and that's what's special is that in the hands of someone who is very adept adept at being a curator it becomes magnificent mm. at what they're able to able to do with it and just like um a film camera in uh, in the hands of a of a maestro like Vittorio Storaro as a cinematographer the, the understanding of light and storytelling and composition and everything that comes into play because he's been studying painting his whole life and studying great artworks and and studying other storytellers points of view then the curation becomes magnificent and that curation could be in the form of a film to what like mike d's doing with the echo chamber where you're just like wow i'm just I just, I'm like, wow, I just listened to the same show three times. <laughs> like <laughs> I've been working. I didn't realize it. I'm like, well, that's the third time I've heard the clash is magnificent seven in the last three hours. So I think I've got to change things here. Um, and, and true story. And th that's what I'm looking for in this new digital realm is the maturity of curation. Who is, who is, who's guiding me um, it, much like uh, great curated magazines were in the day, whether it was the face or ID magazine out of the UK to whatever was happening with like cream or Ray gun or, um, you know, later on down the road with any other types of publications that had a real perspective to it. Um, okay. Let me ask you a real world thing. If I took one of my paintings or one of my prints or whatever you want to call them, it's a painting, right? Let's say I have 
you know, I have a one of one <laughs> of the cover of Rolling Stone of uh, Nasrat Fada Ali Khan. And it's one of one. There is no other. I've got it. I have it now. I'm not the artist. <laughs> Can I turn that into an NFT? I mean, if I paid the artist a, a fraction of that, could I say that's now a digital NFT? Well, well, that's that's the entropy of this whole thing. And that's where we're going to have to copyright laws are going to change. Um, copyright has never been assigned to the consumer. Like, like if, if I buy a, a Porsche, for instance, I buy a 911, which is a copyrighted design. I, I don't own the ability to reproduce that Porsche. I can hang on to it um, for 40 years in a barn and pull it out of the barn and be like, Hey, everyone remember you, these exist, this particular model existed. I've got one and I could take it to auction and sell it and have that value returned to me in tenfold for that because I held on to it because I was a collector. So the being a collector of things is a little bit different than being the owner of a thing. And it's the same thing with baseball cards or comic books. Like you could have Superman number one, um, and be the collector of it and own the value in its ability to generate a high amount of return from it as a collector, but you can't um, license that comic book um, to be a movie or license the characters to become a part of something out there, be it uh, some sort of uh, animated series or false, you know, or, like Broadway play or you name it. And, yeah, but and with that, art, it's so much simpler though. You know, that's what I'm saying. So I could just go out there right now with my iPhone, take a digital picture and say, hey, you know, maybe I'll run this through some filters or something, make it a little less obvious what I'm doing. I'm going to sell it as an NFT. <laughs> yeah, and, and you can do that. You're, you're granted that authorship. And, and authorship has always been the... Um, the major crux with a lot of the arts and, and uh, copyright, you name it. Um, and it's understanding, although our copyright laws have changed, there's still some things that are entrenched in different parts of, of history. And if you remember when sampling first hit and and there was all those like, like, hey, the Boogie Down Productions first album and and sampling ACDC. And How about Lou Reed, who won all those people sampled him all the time. He has the biggest catalog of music, I think, from being able to claim stuff on sampling, you know. There you go. And 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 that's um, because and that's where it gets on where is the value is the value in the recreation or is the value of the original creation that people are riding upon to give value to their new creation. And, um, and, and it got quickly all figured out with the music industry is, is, is they weren't going to allow hit songs, um, writing on piggybacking on, on former hits. Right. And, 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 but it was fun for a, a little while. Like I remember Schooly D 
the signifying rapper and sampling Led Zeppelin. <laughs> right. <laughs> Cashmere. <laughs> and, and it was like, oh, this is so cool. Well, well, those, you know, that got shut down pretty quick. And um, but it was it was exciting because it was new stuff for a little while and then the rest got figured out. And that's kind of the way I feel like NFTs are in that space right now. Like it's 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 raw, it's exciting, there's rules are being banned, it's, the innovation is is sliding under the guise of of possibly some copyright infringements here and there and and but it's all moving super fast and it'll all get figured out once the dust settles and um and and that'll somewhat happen as well as like what defines digital art and what defines um and uh, these objects of value i love when i was turned on to um uh to hen the the to tezos um uh, art site because there was these things you could buy for 10, $20 that were like super cool. And, and I was like, wow, this is what NFTs are like. Like if, if some of these other spaces are kind of like Coliseums, like Nassau Coliseum is one particular NFT space. The other NFT space is Madison Square Gardens and the other is the form. And there are, there are all these, you know, one day it's, it's uh, the, it's um, a monster truck show and the next day it's like a circus ice, <laughs> ice capades and circuses two days later and then there's there's the home teams game that on the weekend that's kind of what the major ones have been working at and then when hen was introduced to me I, I was like wow this is like the cbgbs of the nft space like all these little cool indie bands like just putting out cool shit and 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 that's that's what I was hoping the NFT space would be for quite a long time. It only lasted, I don't know, what, six months, like before it was like, you know, and all these giant amounts of capital flowed in um, without seeming to be any type of discretion of duration or point of view, other than monetizing these objects into extraordinary value very, very quickly. Well, the issue is now is I think it's non, you know, everyone's looking for non-correlated assets and unfortunately NFTs are correlated to what's going on in the crypto market space right now. And it's not going so well right now. You know what I mean? So there's a cooling off period, I think even that way. Um, Yeah. Keep it cool kids. Yeah. Keep it cool, man. So to the Boombox project, which kind of defined you in a, a big chunk of your career. Um, I guess I was there when you started just really with the book. Um, what was your thinking around that? Like what, what was your inspiration to do that project? It was was really simple. Um, after a number of different types of accomplishments of which you followed my career on for many years, the boombox project was fundamentally my love letter to New York city. So it was a, it was a love letter to a time, a place, memories, things that that I caught the tail end of, um, especially when I lived off of Times Square um, in the mid nineties, which you were still getting the tail end of 
the large electronic shops and the peep shows and the grunge and all of that. But it was, it was this magnificent, um, uh, rich atmosphere of stuff, which is, which is what a boombox is. It's, it's a boombox is the fact that there's so many, like 10,000 different designs in them that, that two, two bass speakers and a cassette player could be reimagined so many different ways is just beyond special. And, and the boombox really helped um, define an era of music for New York that, especially when you talk to people of, of that era, I I'm, I'm a fan of the era, but I'm not of the era. And it was when, Josh Schuess and um, Don Letts introduced me to Mick Jones from The Clash. And, and uh, you know, come on, like uh, at Roseland after a big audio dynamite show, and they're like, you gotta go, you know, come, come with us, come with us, come, we gotta meet, meet, meet Mick. He's looking, he, he can't wait. And you're like, Are you, I can't believe you're telling me this. Like, and then you go in this little back room and someone's like, you can't go back there. And they're like, no, no, it's, we're taking Lyle to meet Mick. And then they're like, Mick, this is Lyle who did the beatbox project. And he's like, Oh, oh, that's magnificent. <laughs> I love your book because you, you got it right. And he goes, what was so missed is that, during this time when we were making this music, it was the new waves and the punks and the uptown people and the downtown people and the people from the Bronx. And we were all mixing in together and we were, we were sharing, we were hanging out at the mud club and Tribeca and downtown. And, 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 and he went on about it and that I'd even published images in the book that he'd never even seen before the clash. And, and he was like, ah, oh, brought back so many memories. And, and you're like, wow, Mick Jones is telling me I, I got it right. So, um, you know, I, I, I hope to even just get it half right um, because it's a love letter. It's, it's, a, it's a book written about an era, a time, a place, and an object that brought people together that didn't pull them apart. And um, the fact that so many amazing people from Spike Lee to Adam Yelp agreed to participate and all the photographers of the era whose archives we dug through to find images that people just didn't know about um, that brought it all together. Like, um, like David Byrne on the side of a, a airplane gangway, holding a boom box about to get on an airplane. Like, come on, man. Like that, that says so much because it shows how inclusive and democratic it was as an object. And then when you find out that all these musicians were like, Oh, we always had one with us on the road because that was, our recording studio and and we we didn't have all these high tech we didn't have laptops so the boombox was the laptop of that generation the boombox um was so rudimentary that it guided you into the creation process in a very narrow path like you had to have your idea together before you hit record you couldn't just erase scroll erase scroll you had to have your idea thought out and um and then just reading interviews like Butch Vig talking about the first time he heard Smells Like Teen Spirit and that Kurt Cobain recorded it on a boombox and it was a cassette tape that he heard. And 
And I like things that are raw and authentic and have a bit of history and patina to it. And, and that's what I wanted to feature that, that it wasn't just a book about these devices, like, well, this one's got, you know, this particular modulator and this one has this, you know, antenna structure and this one has toggle switches versus this one has rotating knobs. That's not what it's about. It's about that this object empowered people and, that was what New York was to me, was a place that empowered people. So coming out of um, a, a period of disruption in New York City um, post 9-11 uh, into the crash of 2008, 2008 was when I got the book deal, like the stock market was melting down and I got a book deal, like which sounded like near impossible to pull off, but um, Abrams, bless their heart, signed the project. and. And my editor, David Cashin, said, I don't want you to create a book on boomboxes. I want you to create the book on boomboxes. And I want it to be something that years from now is part of a school curriculum, is part of a college course, is part as a textbook and a manual and almost a blueprint. History book. (laughs) Yeah. But it's it's also a, a guidebook to create your own scene. It's a guidebook that says, oh, well, this is how these people did it. You can do it another way. So it, it was an object of disruption, but that disruption was part of creating new things. And, um, and, it, and it warms people's hearts when they see it. And, and it was fun. I, I wanted some prints of it on my wall in my apartment in New York. And then now lots of people around the world want the same prints and 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 in different eras of their lives and for different reasons it's not just about hip-hop it's not just about punk it's it's all kinds of things from country to uh talk radio to to sporting events where people are like oh man i was listening to you know this championship game on a boom box while i was working in my garage um on my first car that i had in high school and and that's why that, and you're like, wow, it's so important to people on so many different levels or race car drivers who are like, yeah, you know, a lot of them work with an uncle or a grandfather or their dad on their early racing vehicles, whether it was dirt bikes or carts. And there was always a boom box in the garage and of one size or another, but it was a really important device that generated heat and content and discussion and, 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 and new music and, times you heard songs for the first time. And then when people wanted to record that song and then they would wait for that show, for that song to come on and then they would hit record and, and capture that little piece of, of their favorite artist. Um, it's, it's so important. Um, and so that was what I always tried to do with my art projects is, is stop moments in time and, and, and freeze, freeze it on something that you would maybe consider very pedestrian so that you looked at it in a new way. And, well, and you accomplished it. And here we are 13, 14 years after the fact, right? Where this is a nugget in your mind, 15 years. And it has a life. It continues to have life. Absolutely. And because it, it, it shows the importance of that objects as a part of our culture. Whether it, it's whether people still own them now, um, that's to be debated. There's still people who collect them, which is remarkable and fun for them. Um, and 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 uh, but but it's those things that 
that provide real tactile um, moments of inclusion from your life growing up that that um, that you just get excited about and you want to hold on to. And it's been a way for people to keep that flame alive. Right. Well, you know that cassette tapes are coming back. Yes. So I think you and I should definitely work on a boombox design and go get a license and have someone manufacture one for us. Let's do it. Because it's back. I can't believe we've now even skipped beyond vinyl and we're going to uh, cassette tapes. Yeah. And that, and that, because that, that goes back to the talking at the beginning of this conversation about curation and, and a mixtape is amazing curation because people would put mixtape together for people to take them on a journey. You would give your friend a mixtape, be like, Oh, you're going on a road trip. Okay. Here, I'll make you a mixtape. And then, and then you were like, okay, now I'm going to put this after this. And then I'm, then I'm going to put uh, the, the Johnny Cash version of hurt after this. And, and I'm going to, then I'm going to surprise them with like, like a, a kid's show theme for 30 seconds off one of those TVT vinyls I have. And, and then, and then, and then, I'll, and then it's going to break into Soundgarden, you know, and, and, and then I'll finish it up with a real, you know, Madonna track <laughs> to mess with them, you know, that I know that they're going to hate me for, but they're going to be singing to while they're, they're driving their car. And, and, and that's where, um, um, the, people are going back to linear entertainment in this nonlinear world. And that shows the power of curation. And it also shows the power of storytelling um, with the lifestyles of infinite choices. We're becoming more fascinated with uh, finite objects of delivery. And, um, and, things that have layers of meaning to it. It's, it's, we're given so much information on a daily basis. Um, but me of all the things I read in the last week, and then just to read that little anecdote of Bob Dylan, it just stuck out because it was authentic. Right. It's fascinating. So, and look, I, I, we're getting long in time here, but I do, um, what I find fat, look, I'm a little in awe of your career because for some reason you always kind of seem to be at a crossroads or an intersection where something's happening. Um, I feel like you're amused to some people, you know, whether you go and work with, you know, Jeffrey Sachs or whether for some reason randomly, you know, fantastic Negrito and you meet in Oakland or you have all these touch points and, and culture. And it's fascinating. You're like Franklin's like a lightning rod for culture. Um, this one, you know, I want to get to is like, you know, this is just a little bit more somber, but I do want to, you know, we're at the 20th anniversary of um, 9-11. Um, and that day you captured maybe every time I see it, the most gut punching image I've ever seen in my life every and it happens every time I look at it um and having lost a friend in that north tower that day um Matthew um I just want to talk a little bit about that day what your visceral experiences are what it feels like 20 years later um as opposed to whatever adrenaline you were running on that very day 
Um, and of course, I'm talking about the cover of Time magazine um, with the planes hitting um, the towers. Thanks for all the forethought you've you've given this. And um, 9/11 is is like 20 years of experience coming into uh, a three-hour quadrant of time. Um, 9/11 is, is is not just a click of a shutter. 9/11 is 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 reading thousands of novels as a kid. It's it's a studying history. It's it's um, many years ago a painter I'm friends with said that artists have uh, high light, uh, high antennas. They're always gathering in our society. Your antennas are always gathering, and and you can sometimes even find artists who they can be three parts of the world at the same time, but they're all using the same color all of a sudden. And it's like, oh, I feel like, you know, lime green today. And then you call up your friend and you're like, well, what's your, show me what you're up to. So I have the painting of lime green today. And you're like, why are we all painting lime green all of a sudden? And, and, and artists do move like a flock of birds at times. They migrate, um, they stop, they make nests, they, out of what is available, they move on. Um, they choose some pair forever, some choose new mates, but they're always in motion. And for me as a creative person, I was always a student of history. And I think when you allow the world to be bigger than just your small pedantic self, you tap into the greater part of the river that's carrying us all forward. And, and 9-11 was a feeling inside of me long before I took the picture. It was um, consciousness. It was, it was maybe a little bit of enlightenment at times, but it was certainly un, um, unfounded grief for things that I maybe had never participated in, but that I felt as, as part of being the, uh, a contributor to society. And um, I was in Africa just a short few days before um, 9-11. I flew back for a particular reason to do an assignment and left all my camera gear still in my bag at the front door of my apartment in Tribeca and, and was up early and heard the first plane crash, what sounded like an airplane losing an engine and coming out of Newark airport and careening into a row of brownstones in Tribeca. That's, a, that's what I thought. But I, I raced down and grabbed my gear and I went on assignment not knowing the script at all. Um, no one did. Um, but once there, once things started to unwind and then I saw the second plane, then I really knew history was coming in a manner that very few people get a chance to witness firsthand. Um, much like uh, the sailors on board of the deck of a boat in Pearl Harbor. Um, at a very crucial part of history to um, someone watching the Hindenburg catch fire, um, to uh, firebombing of Dresden, to um, uh, even tidal waves in, in our modern times uh, in a resort. And, and I knew I was in a, in, a, in a place of crossroads of change that was very rapidly happening. And when I saw the second plane, I knew what have gone from an accident was deliberate. And that's when I switched into full um, recording mode to record the event 
in as most authentic way as I could. I, so you're I saying, now that. let me, can I interrupt from it? When yeah. you say, when I saw the second plane, you're just saying you saw something low in the sky coming. You yeah. had enough time to witness whatever maneuver yeah, I, that plane I, was making. Yeah, I saw the second plane. I, I heard it first and then I saw it. And when I saw it, 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 it dropped the shoulder, like it dropped one of its wings down. And then you immediately knew it was deliberate. And, and it was like watching um, a high apex predator um, going after prey. And, and that's when I made a choice with knowing my camera, of which I I'd, at that point was a film camera that I'd shot thousands and thousands of pictures with. I knew that if I clicked the shutter at the plane going at the building, I wouldn't have a second shot of the plane crashing in the building. So I, I waited a beat to see what would happen. And then it hit and there was nothing happened for a second. And then that's when I composed this. I had this shot composed and waited, clicked the shutter, clicked more, then realized that the airplane parts were falling at that things that I was looking at in the viewfinder weren't dropping away. They were actually coming direct. And how close were you at that point? Was that just outside of your apartment or did you go further south at that point? Oh, no. oh, I was I was at the corner of the World Trade Center complex. I was a corner of Vesey and Church. Um, so I was right under the complex. And and so it, it occurred right above me. And I, I, you know, I smelled the heat. I felt the heat. I smelt it. it it's I still can smell it. Um, I can still kind of conjure up that memory of the heat wave that that hit the blast, the sound, because um, fundamentally, this is an airline jet at full throttle going from a, a fully assembled object to a massively disassembled object in the span of half a block into the side of a building. So I, I, I've never even seen any piece of media that even comes close to replicating the sound that made nothing like nothing I've watched, nothing I've seen, nothing replicates the sound that that made. And, and it doesn't even come close to capturing it because it's so beyond, because it's, it's not only is it sound, it's concussive, like it, like it push, push the, the push of air. And, and that came with that is, is something that, that I can drift into and drift out of and out of my memory bank. And, I'm fortunate I have a picture that represents my experience. There's other people who have no pictures, but they were there as well. And, and you can look at them. People can look at them and try to search for meaning in, in their face, but they can't explain it. I can, I have at least a little symbol, like a little piece of something that I can say, this is my explanation of what I saw that day. This is my little moment, private moment that now matters much to a lot of people. And as 20 years has gone on, there's very little peer to that particular image. Um, the, the image has a lot of meaning to many different people in many different ways. Um, it's both news, it's history, um, but strangely, it's a really still a very private moment for me. I, I wasn't, uh, I was taking a picture of a good friend meaning the World Trade Center when you lived in downtown New York. Those were good friends. Those were those foggy days. The tops were missing. Um, they were always there, big 
stoic um, towers of modernist brutal brutalism, like citadels of 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 both commerce and and ingenuity and and hubris, which is New York City. Um, and, and they were they were spectacular. They were your friends, and then watching my friend be hurt like that, and then and then watching my friend collapse, capturing that it's still it's still mind boggling that I still don't even fully grasp that I was there, right? Like, because it's such a private event. I wasn't there with a group of friends. I wasn't there to. Um, to, to, to watch a surf contest uh, like in South, you know, in, in Spain or Portugal where they're having a big wave contest or in YMA, in Hawaii, where you, you've actively said, I'm going to go there to, to, to watch something spectacular. I, I, I didn't choose to go someplace to watch something spectacular. I, I went there out of, out of honesty and curiosity, but you know, people were like, people still will say, well, were you watching it on TV? And then you just ask, no, like I was, I heard it out my apartment window and I ran, I just happened to have really highly skilled equipment at my fingertips because I'd flown back from Africa and I was too lazy to unpack my camera bag. And I had film and great, gear that you would be stuff that you wouldn't normally carry with you. Um, it's a very, very important image because it, 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 it imbues awe. It imbues sense of mortality. It, it imbues sense of fear. It imbues sense of discussion. It imbues debate. It, it imbues, um, boldness it 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 brings some people to tears it it's still beyond cognition like it's still 20 years later that picture you still can't go okay i figured it out now like like you can't go i can't i can't i can't if, if and last two three years there was a guy that paired um, cameras with well-known images and he kind of disseminated it down to about 10 images and it, and it circulated around the internet a lot through some of these popular blogs. And they, uh, they would usually have like the, the moon rise shot by, uh, astronauts. They would have, um, uh, the monk on fire in Vietnam, uh, 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 Tiananmen Square, where the guys in front of Tiananmen the tank. Square, um, they would have Afghan Girl um, by uh, Steve McCurry, um, and and then this nine eleven image, and and you you go through it, and it and it's history. Like I, I remember one day I had a subscription to Time Magazine, and it was a few years after the event, and I subscription to Time, and I um, got it, and I was going through my mail, I started to start this and they had, I think, uh, 80 years of Time Magazine and they had five pictures in the layout. And it was uh, Neil Armstrong on the moon. It was the Beatles uh, coming to America. It was my 9-11 image um, and two others I can't recall right at this moment. And, and I remember being like, I grew up with that image of 
Neil Armstrong on the moon as a kid. And now this image is in that same area of discussion. And, and, and I, there was a profound sadness in my image. And then the profound awe of a little boy looking at Neil Armstrong on the moon, because I didn't grow up in America and, and Americans were like, if, if, if the world was five foot four, Americans were six, two and, and, and had a buzz cut and a slide rule and uh, a convertible. And they were going to do anything it took to be the best at anything that they set their minds to. And, and, and America was this massively fascinating, fast moving, innovative society. And there it is, Neil Armstrong on the moon, American, planting an American flag. And then, and then next to it's this image um, of 9-11. And I always sought to do that type, uh, like to be the photographer that was showing those kind of Neil Armstrong moments, moments of hope, the whole moments, moments of success, belief, grace, beauty, um, and, and finality in, in a way where that, that was meant as achievement. And then I end up taking an image that is uh, America, one of its most vulnerable moments. But I and think- And at its worst, right? Yeah. And, but, but I think my, my camera lens was a compassionate camera lens. And it's always been. And, and that compassionate sense was watching my friend get hurt meaning the World Trade Center. Those, those, those are like the two big, beautiful trees in my backyard. And, and I loved them. And, and I remember always, you'd come out of your house, you'd come out of your apartment and onto the street on Broadway, and you'd look to the towers immediately to know what the weather was like. And, and that was a really special part of New York, the speed of New York. The, and, and of course, 9-11 happened in New York because New York is the most American of all cities. And in so many ways, the most culture, like the most fascinating, fast moving, spectacular, bigger than big, the bigger than life place. And so I have so many feelings wrapped up in that image, but my, my, my driving belief in it was just to focus on the grace that we lost something that day and I, and I was able to capture it in a way that, that preserved the magnitude of it. Like, like that's, and that's still what gets people still what gets me. It's what gets you. Even as we're talking in this conversation is still trying to grasp the magnitude of it because it's still beyond comprehension. Right. And well, and having known you and like, look, that's a weird thing when you come from Africa, right? You're in nature you're shooting nature, maybe the only um, violence or destruction you've ever seen is an animal to another animal, let's say, right? You're not, you're not out there shooting, uh, you know, war journalism um, in Afghanistan or Iraq. No. So you're on the scene of really a war, um, that much violence, really. What happens at, like you take shot, what happens after? I mean, are you traumatized? Are you... Did you stop shooting? Did you, for your own safety, have to get out of there immediately? What happened after the shot? I kept shooting. Um, I actually didn't sleep. Um, that happened Tuesday morning, and I didn't sleep till Friday night. 
I kept shooting and and doing what I can and getting film into the news, um, the news agent and it going off to other publications and all of that stuff. But but um, it was summed up best by my dad when he said, I didn't raise a son to see the things that you saw, but I raised a son capable of seeing the things that you saw. And there's a differentiation in that is, is um, people who knew me as a creative were always knew me before then. They were always knew that I was pushing the envelope. I was on the cusp of things. I was, I was always interested in both humanity as it was as a news and humanity as it was about creative expression and that there was always a quest to have something that was truthful and authentic in all the work that I did. And so maybe I wasn't a war photographer, but I was definitely a photographer of humanity. And I had made a choice with the type of gear I was using at that time in my life to, to take the definition of the imagery I was shooting to a higher level. So I was shooting a medium format camera. So that's why that image is so high def. Like it was, it was like doing something in 4k when everything else was 35 millimeter. And so the high definition of that still like is what adds to its magnitude, which wouldn't have been a normal news photographer. Normal news photographer would have been at that time shooting 35 millimeter. So it would have been more grainy. It would have been less definition. It would have had softer edges. It wouldn't have felt um, the, the color spectrum would have been a little bit more crushed and dense. And, 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 and I shot on a medium format camera and transparency film, which gave it that extra definition. And I guess that that's what we look for in artists in our world is to bring extra definition to things that we can't find meaning in, or we can't find uh, a path of voice in. And so artists bring definition, whether it's Neil Young going off in the forest of Laurel Canyon and writing Ohio in 20 minutes because he was reacting against the Kent State um, killings. And, 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 it's like he went out in the forest and divine dropped that into his head, put it on, on, um, uh, in his fingertips. He wrote the song, went back in, played it for Stephen Stills and, and Graham Nash. And, and they're like, dude, like, and, and then they went and recorded the song, put it out and they knocked their own song out of the top of the charts with this song, but they also knew it was so important. And, and, and you'll still listen to that song now. And we're 40 years or 50 years nearly past that event. And, and the song is still poignant because the, there was an authentic high definition artistic articulation that summarized the event for everyone. And, and that's, I think maybe I wasn't a war photographer, but I was, an authentic chronicler of the human condition. So I was put in that pos position, that place, that time and had the fortitude and, and skills to summarize it for us. Cause it's, it's not my picture. It's our picture as right. a society. Right. And what I'm really asking is 
you know, I'm trying to, as a friend, separate uh-huh. you professionally into the human in that event. And like having spent four days immersed in hell um, and destruction, um, seeing things you would never dreamed you were going to see in your life. How did you as a human, like, how did you get a hold of yourself after that week went by? Oh, it's still trying. Like it's, 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 it's never, there's no baseline anymore. You're, you're, you're still disrupted. Like, like every once in a while, there's like last year, um, for some reason for three weeks before July 8th or July 4th, um, people decided to set off fireworks every night in LA for, for weeks. And it, it was starting to really great on my nerves like just every night fireworks 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 you know like why like there's the july 4th celebration i get it but three weeks before every night all night fireworks fireworks i, I did things like that like just start to divide that part inside yourself from your feelings from calmness, from reality. And, and you, you just, it, it sets you off. I, I, I know that um, maybe for a while in my life, I had a temper. I, I don't think I have that as much anymore. It's taken time and maturity and growth um, to reach those places. But you also find times in your life where it's like, Hey man, nothing else is a big deal. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm like today I'm, I'm in LA, the sky's clear and blue. I, I, I drove before our talk, I had to go to a, a meeting with a fabricator in Mount Vernon and my GPS took me through downtown LA. And, and I was like, I was just enjoying the ride, you know, old warehouses, big commercial trucks, skid row, then, then suddenly you're driving through a nice shopping district. Then, boom, you're uh, you know on another road, and and you're like, hey, I'm in LA. It's a beautiful day. Nothing's bad. There's no traffic's going to set me off, you know. Um, and and maybe that's another thing. Maybe for the first few years after 9/11, I kept moving. Moving. I remember one person being like, man, no one's flying anywhere. And you're like on an airplane every three days, it seems. And I was taking assignments in Japan. And I was I was off to Europe and any different thing that I could take, I, I took. And maybe that was a way of coping for a long time was was that um was that uh just stay in motion, stay ahead of feeling anything, always be jet lagged so that you just pass out you wouldn't have to think um and and then I, you get into a new culture and you got your adrenaline going right because it's a new culture and you know there's change exactly. and newness exactly so I, I think there's a decade of constant motion that came in the, the decade after and then and then when finally the boombox project came into my life that became a, a real nice way to exit that um, body of work from 9-11 being what opened the door was started every conversation when I walked into the room. And, and that's, that was fun for me because it was to, to take that path where 
I could have been defined as as being part of the history of one of the darkest moments in New York to suddenly everyone wants to talk about this really uplifting thing that I did that really is my biggest reaction to 9-11 is the big boombox project because that was my path out of that experience and got to show my true feelings for New York, which was a great love and, and a joy and an annoyance and a frustration and and all the, uh, the things that go with it. Like even Spike Lee, when he wrote the forward to my book, was like, boombox says they were annoying, you know? <laughs> and, and it was like, man, and we, yeah, when you're in Brooklyn and you're in a brownstone with, you know, kind of thin wooden framed windows that were built 60 years earlier and someone was walking down the road, blasting out the anthem of the week, or in a um, subway car. <laughs> subway cars, yeah. And I, you know, that that's amazing when that happens and you're like, like, wow. Like, you're, you're still like, it's like, hmm. You know, that's really, it, but it's, it was a way of, but it was a fantastic object for people to state their presence. And it, you could disagree with it or agree with it, but it was a way to state your presence. And that's why it's so important. It's still so important. Um. If, if my photographs were my way of stating my mortality and mortal perspective, the boombox project was a way for me to establish my presence. Right. I think it was your uh, therapy and you didn't even know you needed it. So. Absolutely. And, and I think that that's the goal with art is, is it's, it's, it is therapy. It's, it is, and it, a lot of it comes from ther therapy. Great writers bleeding onto pages. Great songwriters bleeding into microphones. Um, that's, that's where, like, like, Phil Collins talking about playing in the air tonight for Ahmet Erdogan, if I'm correct. And, and Ahmet being like, no, no, that, it's done. And he's like, oh, no, I got to redo the drums and, and, the, and the, the, the programming has some hiss in it. No, 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 no. It, this is it. We're releasing it like this. And then, and then years later, talking to a friend who was going through a divorce. And, and I was telling him that Phil Collins wrote that song while he was going through a real, like a breakup, like a divorce, I believe as well. And he's like, oh, man, he goes, I listen to that song every night when I drive home in my car and I air drum and it helps me. And I was like, yeah, because Phil was like, had that same frustration. And he was like, oh man, I didn't know that. And, and that's, that's like what I'm talking about where um, early hip hop writing about feelings in the city in the exact same way that James Brown wrote about feelings of cities and cultures. And um, I remember the first time I was in a session with Alicia Keys and Swizz Beats, and a few, I think maybe even Pharrell was in the room, and I and I played "Down and Out" New York City for Swizz, and he'd never heard it by James Brown. And I was, and he was like, "How did I miss this song? And, I, and how did I miss this?" And it's like, hey, it meant something different to me. It was an anthem for me for many years, and and I guess you find those songs when you're ready for them, and 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 I always loved because this goes back to curation. I always loved those times when I'd be with Swizz where I'd play those guys' songs because I was a, a different, I had different cultural markers in me. I had different songs in me. I had different music I was listening to. 
but it was always fun because you were curating for your friends and you were inspiring each other. And, and um, much like you've done as an A&R person over the course of your career. And, and that's where Boombox Project was this opportunity for me to curate what I liked about New York City and what I came to New York City for. And, and it wasn't for the boomboxes, it was for the authentic experience. And I got to live that authentic experience in many, many ways, which I feel incredibly fortunate for because I got to be there and participate and contribute wow. and make, make mark. Well, I'm fortunate to call you a friend and I'm fortunate um, that you spent time with me today and did this with me today. So um, I can't thank you enough for your time, um, your friendship, everything. So, uh, and uh, thank you for doing this. And I think we're going to have to do a part two at some point. So, because <laughs> I have more questions we didn't get to. So, um, but thank you so much, Lyle. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Nick. This was fun. I hope to see you soon. Yes, I miss you. Thank you for listening. This show originates from the podcast capital, Austin, Texas. My producer is Sean O'Neill. Visit theradicalpot.com for updates and even some merchandise. Also, please subscribe at Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And I also ask that you please share episodes with your friends so we can continue to grow our community. See you all again next Friday.